What happened to music that meant something? Like the Who at the Kingdom or Kiss at the Coliseum. Where is the Misty Mountain Hop? Where is the is the smoke on the water? Where is the Iron Man of today? Combine two or three virtuoso musicians and a legendary celebrated lead singer and you get instant supergroup success, right? Well, not always. I'm Jim DeRogatis from WBEZ and Columbia College. And I'm Greg Cott from the Chicago Tribune. Today we look at the rock phenomenon of the supergroup. And later, Alicia Keys is a girl on fire. That's all coming up on Sound Opinions. You're listening to Sound Opinions, and time now for Rock Supergroups. Everybody got somebody to lean on. Put your body next to mine and dream on. I'll be the Handle with care by the Traveling Wilburys. Why are we playing the Traveling Wilburys at this point? <laughs> we wanted to look at this idea of the supergroup, where multiple band members from already famous bands get together and create a new group out of it, uh, the supergroup. The Traveling Wilburys exhibit one in a lot of ways for this phenomenon. In the 80s, Bob Dylan, Roy Orbison, Jeff Lynne, George Harrison, and Tom Petty, five pretty big names already on their own, got together in a recording studio and made an album as the Traveling Wilburys. Later on, went, made another album without uh, Orbison, who had died at that point. But the point being that this is a phenomenon that has been going on through pop music history. Just look at the recent guest we had on the show, Divine Fits. That's a band made up of Britt Daniel from Spoon, Dan Beckner from Wolf Parade and Handsome Furs, and Sam Brown from New Bomb Turks. They join a long list of supergroups, some of which deserve that word super, and some maybe not. And we reviewed a few of these bands on the show where they have been amalgamations of yeah. other bands. You know, uh, Tinted Windows with Bunny Carlos, Taylor Hansen, James Eha, Bunny with uh, Cheap Trick, Taylor Hansen with Hansen, James Eha with the Smashing Pumpkins. talked about Dead Weather with Jack White of the White Stripes meeting Allison Mosshart of The Kills. We've talked about The Tours, another white band with mm-hmm. Brendan Benson. We have neglected to mention Chickenfoot, I think. I don't know how of- we did that. <laughs> Sammy Hagar of Van Halen and Montrose, Michael Anthony of Van Halen, Chad Smith of the Red Hot Chili Peppers, and Joe Satriani, the uh, superstar guitarist who hates Coldplay. <laughs> Rock, 
Also, Monsters of Folk with Connor Oberst of Bright Eyes, Jim James from My Morning Jacket, and M. Ward. They got together in 2009 for what we called a Burn It album. And then there's my favorite, Demnocracy. Sebastian Bach of Skid Row and Ted Nugent, who's Ted Nugent. He needs no introduction. <laughs> Greg, I got a theory about supergroups, as I often do, right, uh, on these things. So Sammy, Mike, Joe, and Chad get together. <laughs> they, they, they play in the basement, right? They're just any Sammy, Joe, Mike, and Chad. And who cares? Maybe it clicks and maybe it doesn't. Why, when all of a sudden they're Sammy Hagar, Michael Anthony, Joe Satriani, and Chad Smith, is there a better chance of that band working as a group? You know, in order for a super group to work, I think it presumes two things. Number one, that these people really are super. And I would say, all due respect to the records he sold, that Sammy Hagar, or Michael Anthony for that matter, in any incarnation, are not all that super as far as a larger-than-life rock talent. But number two, why would you think, just because you put them in front of like the Red Hot Chili Peppers drummer and Joe Satriani, that there is any chemistry. You know, Mm -hmm. bands, no matter how talented the individual members are and how much of a reputation they have in other contexts, they're not necessarily going to work together. Sometimes, though, Jim, you have to look at these supergroups as happening on a thin air. It's almost an accident that they happen. I think lately we've seen much more calculated reasons for supergroups to get together. You know, it's it, there's money involved. Back in 1956, I don't think there was such a thing as a supergroup. It certainly wasn't on Sam Phillips's mind, the great producer in Memphis at Sun Studios when he was uh, doing a session with Carl Perkins. Perkins was coming off of blue suede shoes. He was looking to record a follow-up in the studio at the time was a fledgling piano player desperate for work, a guy named Jerry Lee Lewis. And then Sam Phillips' greatest find up to that point, Elvis Presley, just happens to be cruising the neighborhood with his girlfriend and decides to drop into the studio. He gets on the phone with Johnny Cash and says, Hey, Johnny, you might want to come down to the studio. we got a few people in here you might want to see. Phillips makes one more phone call, calls a reporter, at the local daily newspaper and has him come by with a photographer to capture, document this event. But Phillips, to his credit, perhaps eternally, just rolls some tape and says, boys, we're having fun. You know, we got this photo op, we'll take a photo, and you guys do whatever you want to do. And and basically what he did was preserve a moment in time where you had these four soon-to-be legendary figures in the studio at one time just bantering, going back and forth, trading songs, basically trading the songs that they grew up on. Mostly gospel songs, a lot of old blues, R&B, doo-wop, and just having a ball in the studio. So it's kind of, talk about being a fly on the wall at one of the most important historical events of musical history of the last 50 years. That's basically what Sam Phillips provided. It goes uh, on to be called the Million Dollar Quartet. That's how it goes down to history. And really, the birth of rock and roll, as well as the birth of the supergroup, is what you had in that room. What's amazing about it, Jim, again, is that, is that Phillips didn't really knuckle down and say, you know, guys, give me a song. But there were a few moments where things came together, and you can hear Elvis, who takes most of the lead vocals here. Cash really didn't participate so much in the musical aspect of it. He was there mostly to observe. But Perkins is on guitar, certainly, and, and Lewis was banging out that piano and also inserting himself on the vocals, making yeah. sure that people knew, I'm here. He doesn't uh, take a backseat to anybody. So you can hear it on this particular song, Just a Little Talk with Jesus, where you hear the Million Dollar Quartet in action in 1956 on Sound Opinions. I once was lost in sin, but Jesus took me in. 
Well, then a little light from heaven filled my soul. Well, he made my heart in love and wrote my name above. Well, just a little talk with my Jesus gonna make it right. Well, let's have a little talk with Jesus. I tell him all about the troubles. He will hear our faintest cry and he will answer Just a little talk with Jesus by the Million Dollar Quartet from Sun Records. We wanted to bring that in, Greg, because I think most people believe that the idea of the supergroup began in the 60s. Mm-hmm. But but I really think that it was already, the, the template was already there. Yeah, absolutely, Jim. And I think that the stakes changed, uh, you know, fast forward 10 years to the 60s. And you saw a whole different set of concerns and pressures being involved. When you saw the group Cream form in England in the, in the mid-60s, there was already this idea that we're going to take these name-brand players and, and, and form a great group out of it. Eric Clapton was, was really well-known in England at the time. He'd already spent time in the Yardbirds and with John Mayall's Blues Breakers. His future bandmates in Cream, Jack Bruce and Ginger Baker, were less known, but they were really respected musicians. They had been together in this band, the Graham Bond Organization. And they bonded together, formed the Cream, and within a couple of years were a multi-million selling group that was playing arenas around the world and selling tons of records. At the same time, Clapton, in this experience, was really miserable because Bruce and Baker were constantly fighting, and there was a a sense that the music was now about three guys up on stage uh, soloing their brains out and and no longer involved in music-making for music-making's sake. It was more about individual egos rather Mm. than the song. You know, I think Clapton and I think history, to an extent have taken a sort of jaded view about just how good this band was. But if you listen to the studio recordings, I think there was some excellent, excellent music made by this band. The, the, I think the songwriting was really top-notch, much of it by Jack Bruce. Bruce was, a, was an astonishingly good vocalist. And Clapton, 
I think, has never been better because he wasn't asked to carry the major load as the vocalist and frontman. He's always been best when he's been uh, surrounded by talents that are his equal and he's allowed to play the guitar. Yeah. And I think he did that very, very well in Cream, especially on those studio recordings. Here's Cream from the 1967 album Israeli Gears on Sound Opinions. Coming to me in the morning. Has a beard running to me a cry when it throws you out running to me a cry on your own again. You got that pure feel, such good responses, but the has a mustache You come into me with that soulful look on your face You come in looking like you never ever done one wrong thing Cream from 1967 on Sound Opinions. Now, the band broke up the following year, but uh, Eric Clapton was already forging a bond with Steve Winwood, a guy he'd admired for a long time as the vocalist in uh, the Spencer Davis group and in a new group called Traffic. Winwood was three years younger than Clapton. Consider that Clapton was 23 years old at the time. Winwood was a mere 20. And Clapton was looking at this guy and says, you know, I really want to make music with this guy. I want to do something lower key. Mm-hmm. I want to do something that is less about this stadium-level mega band that Cream had become and do something more intimate. So that was the initial idea with Winwood. But what we can see here is the corrupting influence of major labels and money. Because the group that Clapton formed with Winwood and later on Ginger Baker called Blind Faith was a supergroup times ten. The band quickly went into the studio, made a record, and their first show was in Hyde Park in the summer of 1969 in front of 100,000 people. (laughs) (laughs) No pressure in that kind of debut. No pressure. Clapton's going, what have I gotten myself into? I went from one 
quote-unquote supergroup into another in no time at all. The music never really had any time to incubate. They never really got a chance to become the great live band that Clapton thought that they could become. So within six or seven months, he had left Blind Faith as well. But they left behind some extraordinary music. Again, there was three or four songs on that first Blind Faith album, the first and only Blind Faith album, that are really extraordinary. And it was a chance here where, you know, if this group had been given a little time to develop, they could have created something really amazing. But as it was, we're left with just this one record. Here's a track from it, Can't Find My Way Home on Sound Opinions. Come down off your throne and leave your body alone Somebody must change Blind Faith with Can't Find My Way Home from their one and only release in 1969. We'll continue talking supergroups in a minute on Sound Opinions from WBEZ Chicago and PRX. And later, Greg and I will review the new album from that girl on fire, Alicia Keys.
Welcome back to Sound Opinions. I'm Jim DeRogatis. My partner is Greg Cott. And that's another super group, the Jeff Beck Group, which had, uh, of course, Jeff Beck on guitar, Greg, Rod Stewart on vocals, Ron Wood, future Rolling Stone on bass, another classic 60s super group. That's the topic of today's show, supergroups. But I think when you talk about supergroups in the 60s, you've got to look at Crosby, Stills, and Nash, plus sometimes Young. Mm -hmm. The story goes that these three musicians who had all had some success already, David Crosby as a member of the Birds, Stephen Stills in Buffalo Springfield, and Graham Nash with the Hollies, it was kind of a loosey-goosey thing. You know, everybody's hanging around at uh, Cass Elliott's house, Mama Cass Elliott, and these three guys start harmonizing, and the idea is born. In fact, obviously, they had all had careers. They had all had careers in bands where they had been Mm. under appreciated they felt Crosby taking a backseat to Roger McGuinn and the Birds Stills obviously having to to play behind Neil Young fronting Buffalo Springfield so they all want to be stars and they decide they're going to do it together and therein lies the problem of Crosby Stills and Nash throughout their entire four decade now history going back to my theories of why supergroups work and why they don't obviously uh, Crosby Stills and Nash made some fine music and those are three wonderful voices when you combine it really is an instrument that is bigger than all three of them. So it works on the musical level. doesn't quite work on the personal level all the time. Now, all of a sudden, they decide in 69 they need another ingredient. First, they're thinking, let's bring in that Steve Winwood guy on keyboards. <laughs> He's already been in, in a couple of supergroups. The heck with that. They're managed by a guy named Elliot Roberts who makes the suggestion, you need Neil Young. I was watching one of those public broadcasting specials about Neil Young the other night, and it struck me seeing him play with Crosby, Stills, and Nash. It's like it's a fine dish that is missing something, and all of a sudden you put in the cumin or or the paprika, Mm -hmm. you know, and it's like, oh, okay, now it's something. Because Neil really can't sing as well as those three harmonizing guys. But you look at the version of, say, Teach Your Children that they recorded before Neil, and then you look at the version from the live album, Four-Way Street, with Neil, Mm -hmm. and and it's much, much better. They make their debut with Neil Young at Woodstock in 1969, and through all the years that have followed, Young kind of comes in when he feels like it. And those other guys all kind of fall apart without him. They all wind up feuding with each other, but when you add the why, you got something special. Let's hear that version of Teach Your Children that he wound up playing on from Four-Way Street in 71. You who were on the road must have a code that you can live by, and so become yourself because the past is just a goodbye. Teach your children well. Their father's health did slowly go by and feed them on your dreams. The one they fix, the one you know by. Everybody sing with us. Don't you ever ask them why? If they told you, you would cry. So just look at them and sigh. And 
That's teacher children from Crosby, Stills, Nash, and Young. And yes, Young, a very important ingredient here because Crosby, Stills, and Nash did have a tendency to argue among themselves. But when you added the fourth person into the room at that point, who happened to be Neil Young, suddenly all the bickering went out of the way and the focus became the music again. And as you go into the 70s, the nature of the supergroup changes, Greg, after CSNNY, after Cream and Blind Faith. I think it's best illustrated in the progressive rock genre. By this point, you'd had all these English musicians who had had the first blush of success as members of these psychedelic pop groups that followed in the wake of the Beatles, right? Something like Emerson, Lake, and Palmer comes out of the ashes of the Nice and the early King Crimson. Basically, progressive rock was lousy with supergroups. Yes was a supergroup when it formed. Steve mm-hmm. Howe had been in Tomorrow and, and Chris Squire had been in The Sin. Both had big hits in the UK in the psychedelic era. But the progressive rock supergroup I want to play to illustrate the 70s version of this came a little later and none of the musicians were really A-listers, although they were all extraordinary talents. UK was a short-lived British supergroup from 77 through 80. It was uh, founded by John Wetton, who had been the singer and bassist in King Crimson, and uh, drummer of Bill Bruford, who'd also been in King Crimson and then in Yes, and then basically played with every prog rock band that ever did anything. The initial idea was to make a band with Rick Wakeman, but his label at the time wouldn't let the Yes keyboardist out of his solo project on top of being with Yes. They were each allowed to bring one other musician into the mix. Wetton brought in Eddie Jobson, who had played in Roxy Music, the electric violinist and keyboardist. And Bruford brought in Alan Holdsworth, the great jazz guitarist. UK made a couple of studio albums in that guise. Uh, I will admit the first band I ever saw in an arena setting. UK was opening for Jethro Tull in uh, 1979 (laughs) when I saw them. At that point, uh, Holdsworth was gone and so was Bruford, but they had another superstar, drummer Terry Bazio, this extraordinary young talent who had made his name at that point playing with Frank Zappa, mm-hmm. would go on to play with missing persons, right? right. But, but so Wetton and Jobson and Bozio on stage in an arena filled with people. I mean, it was just, it was, I guess the first band I ever saw was a super group. <laughs> Here is UK with the title track of that 79 live album, Night After Night, on Sound Opinions. Darkness descends on the freeway Lies turning to stone I'm driving myself out crazy I wish I were headed for home Think I went with that 
That is Night After Night from UK, one of the supergroups we're discussing today on Sound Opinions. To comment on supergroups or anything else we discuss on this show, call our hotline at 888-859-1800. Jim, after UK, John Wetton went on to another supergroup, Asia. Steve Howe and Jeff Downs, both of Yes in Asia, and uh, Carl Palmer, who was kind of a supergroup whore in a lot of ways. He was, <laughs> yeah. he, he was an Emerson, Lake, and Palmer before this, and, and they were uh, a supergroup. Does it stop to be so super yeah. <laughs> once you've been in three or four of them, you know? Exactly. But uh, nonetheless, Carl Palmer kept making the good commercial moves because Asia sold a lot of records back in the early 80s. Look, I think that by the time you got to the 80s, the idea of a supergroup, especially in the underground rock world, was already a bit of a joke. Anton Fear was a very talented drummer who'd played uh, in a number of wonderful settings, including the Feelies and then the Lounge Lizards, when he decided to put together basically a group of his friends, kind of making fun of, but at the same time paying tribute to the idea of the supergroups that had come before. So what he's doing is basically collecting the cream of the crop in the underground New York scene at the time in the early 80s. People like the vocalist Sid Straw, who went on to an extraordinary solo career, Michael Stipe of R.E.M., whenever he was in town, John Lydon of the Sex Pistols mm-hmm. and PIL. Anton even got Jack Bruce of, of Cream. People would come and go through the band he put together that was called the Golden Palominos. I really fell in love with the single they did. Michael Stipe of R.E.M. was on vocals. Chris Stamey of the DBs was on guitar. You had the great Jody Harris also adding guitar. It was a cover of a band from that earlier era. Mm-hmm. Moby Grape was in many ways in the, in the 60s uh, kind of a super group that was local to San Francisco. You know, they, they were the band with three guitars. Right. They were the band that released every track on their debut album was a single that they all released simultaneously. And already you had it in the late 60s, people were reacting against that hype. Right. But there was an incredible song called Omaha that was resurrected later on in the early 80s by the Golden Palominos. Here it is on Sound Opinions.
Omaha by the Golden Palominos, a super group from the 80s featuring a very fluid lineup. But in that song, we had Anton Fear, Michael Stipe, and Chris Staney, among others. I think another example of a type of supergroup we started to see in that era was when a disaffected band member united with another disaffected band member to create a new band because their old groups weren't working anymore. Yeah. And that was the case with Electronic. Bernard Sumner was uh, not getting along with his bandmates in New Order anymore. That band was on hiatus. Johnny Marr had just seen the Smiths blow up when Morrissey, the singer, walked out of that band. Two talented guys looking for work. They bonded together, created Electronic, recorded a few albums together. Actually had a kind of a successful run and a few hits, mostly in the UK. Here's one of them from 1991. Get the message on Sound Opinion. I always thought of you as my brick wall. Built like an angel, six feet tall. Supergroup Electronic with Get the Message. We'll wrap up our discussion of supergroups after a quick break on sound opinions from WBEZ Chicago and TRX. Then we'll review the latest from Alicia Keys. But you know what else is super? Your messages. Share your thoughts on supergroups or anything else on your mind at 888-859-1800.
Welcome back to Sound Opinions. We've been talking about supergroups, and we've officially made it up to the 90s. That you will recognize as the Foo Fighters, a band we can forget as a supergroup. Dave Grohl been the drummer in Nirvana. He was joining forces with Pat Smear of the L.A. punk band The Germs and Later Day Nirvana, and Nate Mandel and William Goldsmith of Sunny Day Real Estate. Jim, I want to go back to the million-dollar quartet model we talked about at the top of the show. I'm thinking of a 90s band like Temple of the Dog, which was basically an ad hoc band created to uh, record a tribute album to Andrew Wood, a Seattle singer who had died of a heroin overdose. He had been in Mother Lovebone, and Chris Cornell of Soundgarden and his bandmate Matt Cameron got together in the studio with uh, former Mother Lovebone musician Stone Gossard and Jeff Amet, as well as a couple of new guys in town, Eddie Vedder <laughs> and uh, Mike McCready, yeah. to just record a bunch of songs. But, you know, here was your 90s version of the Million Dollar Quartet as performed in Seattle. Well, yeah, and then the 90s were lousy with it from that point on. You know, something like Mad Season or Phantomas. Yeah. And, and then I think kind of like the 90s ended in, in the mid-2000s with Audio Slave, right. when Cornell <laughs> is in front of the musicians from Rage Against the Machine, which nobody ever thought was a good idea of a supergroup. Right, right. But here's one I can defend. Temple of the Dog from 1991 with Hunger Strike on Sound Opinions. Well, I don't mind stealing bread from the mouths of decadence But I can't feed on the powerless when my cup's already Hunger Strike by the supergroup Temple of the Dog. Jim, it's interesting that this supergroup trend never really caught on in hip-hop. 
the more commonplace thing is to see a cameo vocal. It did happen in, in the R&B world with a group called Lucy Pearl, a combination of Raphael Sadiq, who had been coming off a long run of hits with Tony Tony Tone, Dawn Robinson, one of the vocalists in En Vogue, and Ali Shahid Muhammad from A Tribe Called Quest. Now, all of these groups had broken up. These three joined forces and made one pretty good record. They were trying to forge a nice synthesis of street sounds, that hip-hop vibe, with an old-school R&B soul vibe. And I think they got about halfway there. I think if they had stuck around long enough to make another record, this group could have really been something. But as it is, we only have the one record, and uh, here's a single from it, Don't Mess With My Man on Sound Opinions. Don't Mess With My Man on Sound Opinions by Lucy Pearl. Rare example of a supergroup that is deserving that appellation, which wraps up our look at supergroups this week. You're listening to Sound Opinions, and that is Girl on Fire, the title song from the fifth studio album from Alicia Keys. Alicia Aguayo Cook, born in New York in 1981, somewhat of a prodigy, professional performing arts school in Manhattan. She graduated there in three years at the age of 16, classically trained pianist, mentored by Clive Davis. At the age of 20 in 2001, she releases a debut album called Songs in A Minor, that is an absolute sensation, sells over 12 million copies, wins five Grammy Awards. A star is born, right? I 
she ends up dominating the last decade, really. I mean, she sold 35 million albums, 30 million singles, 14 Grammy Awards, one of the most decorated artists of our time. Now we have album number five, Girl on Fire. We're going to review it in a minute, but here's a track from it, Brand New Me from Alicia Keys on Sound Opinions. It's been a while, I'm not who I was before. You look surprised, your words don't burn me anymore. Been meaning to tell you, but I guess it's clear to see. Don't be mad. It's just a brand new kind of me Can't be bad I found a brand new kind of free Careful with your ego He's the one that we should blame Had to grab my heart back Got no something had to change Thought that you'd be happy I found the one thing why you mad? It's just a brand new kind of me. It took a long, long time to get here. It took a brave, brave girl to try. It took one too many excuses, one too many lies. Don't be surprised. Be surprised if I talk a little louder, if I speak up when you're wrong, if I walk a little taller. I've been under you too long. If you notice that I'm different, I'm taking personal things. Don't be mad, it's just a brand new kind of me. That was Brand New Me from album number five from Alicia Keys' Girl on Fire. Greg, why is it a brand new Alicia Keys? Well, since we heard from her last, she is now happily married to the very talented producer, Swizz Beats, who's one of several working on this record, and they have a baby boy, young son named Egypt. You can hear him saying his name and I love you to his mommy on uh, one of these tracks here. There are two kinds of songs here. One, Alicia still wants to be running with the Brat Pack girls. Girl on Fire delivered over that ridiculous sample of a Billy Squire 80s drum beat with Nicki Minaj chiming in. There can be a drinking game in the up-tempo songs here. The number of fire metaphors, Mm. you know, she's just red hot still. She may be a mom and she may be married, but Alicia is still red hot. Then there are the quiet introspective songs where she talks about having a new place in life. My problem with her throughout You know, we always get this protestation, I'm a real musician, I'm a fascinating, multi-layered person, but to me, she remains a cipher. There is so little soul in what Alicia Keys is. She was made to be a platinum superstar, a pop persona, and, and despite singing even about her young child or how much she loves her husband, I still get no sense ever of a real musician here in the great lineage of, of soul divas from, you know, I don't care if you're talking about Aretha Franklin or Adele. Those are all real women. Who is Alicia Keys? I still have no idea and very little reason on this album to care anymore. It's a trash it record for me. 
Yeah, it's a disappointment for me as well, Jim. As you said, I think there's a potential here. You keep waiting for that great Alicia Keys song or that great Alicia Keys album. There are people out there who will argue and say, she's already done that. But I think it's all about signifiers. You know, the voice has got some qualities to it. You think, well, she's a real soul singer. As you said, classically trained pianist, she's got chops. She participates in the songwriting and the co-production of all her records. She's very involved, very hands-on. But at the same time, you hit the nail on the head. The fact that these songs are really saying nothing. She reminds me of the great professional athlete spouting these cliches in response to an interviewer's questions. You know, our back's against the wall. We've got to play in one game at a time. We've got to rally together as a team. We've got to move the ball. We never get any sense of who this person is. These yeah. songs by committee are just killing her. There is one moment on this record where the songwriting actually meets the talent level, and that is that Frank Ocean song, which is buried near the end of the album, called One Thing. I think this is the worst Alicia Keys record. I'm, I'm so disappointed. Girl on Fire, there is no spark here at all. It's a trash it record for me. So that's a double trash it, unfortunately, for Alicia Keys. Greg, what do we have on the show next week? Next week, Jim, we make up our mixtapes of 2012, our personalized versions of the best songs of the year. Greg, as always, we have some thank yous to say on the way out. Sound Opinions is produced by our very own supergroup. Jason Saldana and Robin Lynn, Annie Minoff and our intern Griffin Waterman, and our fearless leader, our executive producer, Tori Southside Malatea. You never call my name. On Sound Opinions, everyone's a critic. So now it's time to hear what you have to say. New messages. Hi, Greg and Jim. This is Sally calling from Zinzerhausen, Germany. I just wanted to call to give you my albums of the year, and that's the Sufjan Stevens uh, Christmas box set. Five CDs, 58 songs, and um, I love Christmas. I love Sufjan Stevens. It's just a win-win situation here. But I must say, I mean, for just having 58 songs, maybe not all of them are, are the great. It sounds a little bit like Drunken Christmas. But that's okay, too. But my favorite song, which I would call the song of the year, is a song called Justice Delivers Its Death. Silver and gold Silver and gold Everyone wishes for it. And it's really moving. I mean, basically, I cry every time I hear it, but cry in a good way. It's good. Anyway, um, that's it. Thank you guys for your show. I love it. I listen to it, podcast it every week. Keep up the good work. Bye-bye. Hi, I'm Stacy, and I'm from Louisville, Kentucky, calling because of sound opinions and they said to call in with your favorite record so mine is confessed by twin shadow five six to your heart straight to your heart i can get to your heart it is my favorite record of 2012 because it gives you that dark brooding feeling accompanied with something nostalgic that you can't quite put your finger on it's pretty much my perfect album Thanks, 
Hey, guys. This is Frank Manzo calling from Staten Island. Just listening to your uh, music news about the about ACDC being a holdout on iTunes. You also mentioned Def Leppard. I uh, recently heard an interview with Def Leppard where they're really in a holdout with their record label. And what Def Leppard actually did was went into the studio and re-recorded note for note the entire Hysteria album and then put that up on iTunes. And what was kind of crazy is that what's this, 25, almost 30 years later, that they were really able to recreate it just about note for note. Love is like a mom, baby, come and get it on. Living like a lover with a red iPhone. Looking like a tramp, like a video vamp. Demolition woman, can I be a man? Thanks, guys. Greg and Jim, this is Nalanka from D.C. I was just calling in regards to your review of The Coup. Um, just wanted to share this story. Back in early 2001, I was uh, drinking and downloading one night and uh, woke up the next morning and happened to find about three minutes of a song called Me and a Pimp Named Jesus. Listened to it, and I was like completely blown away. And then realized that obviously the song wasn't the full song. So did some digging and found out about the coup. And of course the song's full title is Me and a Pimp Named Jesus and the 79 Granada Last Night. Well, he was smiling like a vulture as he rolled up the horticulture. Ignited it and said, I hope the vapors don't insult you. What I replied, denied, but I'm mixing weed and hot. He said, it was nine up and down like he agreed a lot. Boy, said, we need a plot. I comply, let's lead a spot. Hopped in the Granada, he's impressed by the beat. I got his name is Jesus, but his pimp name is Jesus. Needless to say, that song changed my life. No more messages. To give us your opinions on Sound Opinions, call our hotline, 888-859-1800. We'll be back next week with more Sound Opinions, produced by WBEZ Chicago and distributed by PRX.